Well, during this Easter season, we have been taking a journey through uh, the life of Jesus in the last week that he lived here on earth with the theme he is. Last week, we talked about how Jesus transformed the, the Passover uh, into the Lord's Supper, uh, reminding them not only of the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt, but of the coming deliverance of his people through the cross, and then ultimately that future deliverance that that banquet at the end of time. Now, to, today I want us to look at three scenes from the night before Jesus was crucified. And in each of these scenes, we see Jesus show up in a powerful way. And that's why the title of the message is, He is Powerful. So we're going to look at three different sections in Luke chapter 22. So if you have your own Bible, you want to turn there, great. If not, they'll be on the screen. We want you to follow along because these scenes show us about the amazing, powerful work and love of the one who died on the cross for you and for me. The first one I want you to see comes right after the Lord's Supper has happened and they've been in the upper room and they're going to go out for the evening and they're going to spend time in prayer. So we're going to pick up in verse 39 where we see that Jesus powerfully commits to God's plan. Look at verse 39. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and he sweat, drop, he sweat. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What I want you to see here is as Jesus has completed that Lord's Supper transformation, changing Passover into a reminder of his powerful work for us, they, they were in the city somewhere. There's debate about where it was. I guess it doesn't really matter the exact location it happened. But after they left, they went to the eastern side of the city to cross what is called the Kidron Valley. And it's still there today. It's a kind of a deep valley. The city sits on one side and on this side is the Mount of Olives. And on the western slope of the Mount of Olives is a, is a, a grove of olive trees that have been there for thousands of years from what they can tell. You can go there today and probably be around some of the trees that were there when Jesus was there, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. But you walk, he walked over there with his men for one reason and one reason only. He went over there to spend time in prayer. You know, we sometimes think Jesus was all in on this crucifixion thing. I think we find in this passage that he really, as human, struggled with the idea of going through that moment as as he did. You look at it and go, wow, I don't know about you, but if I was told that I have to go to a cross tomorrow and be crucified and be brutalized and be embarrassed and to be all of these things, I would probably want to go in a whole other direction, wouldn't you? But Jesus goes to this garden with his men 
to this place where it's within a stone's throw almost of the temple walls. You can look up and see the temple from this place because it's that close. And here in the shadow of the temple, Jesus and his disciples would go often when they were in town to, to, to spend time there. It's been known as a place where the poor folks would camp out. They couldn't afford the, the hotels, the inns, the places to stay. So they would stay out there and sleep under the trees. And Jesus and his men are over there in this place. But they weren't there to camp. They were there to pray, to spend time communing with God, talking with God, having a relationship with God. And it's here that we find Jesus' powerful commitment that says, yes, God, I will. I don't know about you, but it would be a struggle to go through what he went through. But he's praying, and you notice he actually sweat drops of blood. It was so painful for him and so difficult for him to go through that moment. And there he is praying and praying and praying that, God, your will, not my will. I, I, I would rather not die, he thinks. But, oh, God, your will is for this to happen. He powerfully commits to God's plan. He powerfully commits to God's plan, listen, for you and for me to make us the offer of eternal life. He comes back to the camp, and what does he find? <laughs> doing what you and I would have probably been doing. Late hour, big meal, I'd be asleep. And his disciples were asleep. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Wake up. we got too much to do to sleep. Too much going on to sleep. He says, stand with me. Be powerful of the Lord. Stand with me as we go through this moment. So the first thing I want you to see is Jesus powerfully committed to God's plan. But he also faces the next scene. And you're probably familiar with these scenes. These are nothing new if you've been in church at all in your life. You're going, I've heard these stories. I know you have. I have. I've told them to you before. I know. We've had them. But notice what he does in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, he had just been talking to his guys. Why are you sleeping? There came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near Jesus to get this, to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Man, the tension in the space just exploded. Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But in this hour, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So he comes back to the slumbering disciples. Jesus finds them asleep. He challenges them. He confronts them about sleeping. But there in in the darkness comes a crowd. Can I tell you something? Jesus was never afraid of a crowd. He'd spoken to many, many crowds, large crowds indeed. It wasn't bothering him to stand in front of 5,000 people and feed them. He could do that. But this crowd was a different crowd. This was a crowd who wasn't coming for him to teach them. He wasn't, they weren't coming for him to heal anyone. They weren't coming to find uh, any other reasons than to take him and arrest him and take him to the religious leaders so they could figure out a way to get rid of him. Jesus knew what was coming. Did you notice? His disciples figured it out pretty quick too. In the middle of this coming mob, there was one interesting character. Did you see who was in the middle of the crowd? Judas. You know, we think, oh, Judas was a terrible guy. 
And what he did was indeed, would you agree, terrible. But let me remind you, for the last three years, Judas has walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and ministered with Jesus and has been with Jesus had listened to him and seen all the things that he's done. And he's in the middle of the crowd that's coming to arrest him. He's in the middle of the group that's coming to get rid of him. And, 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 and you're thinking, oh my goodness. And then Judas has the audacity to come up to Jesus to do what? To kiss him. Now, guys, you're thinking, well, he ain't kissing me. Well, that's East Texas bravado, by the way. We don't like it when men kiss us, right, guys? Kind of freaks us out. But in the Middle East... That's common. They would greet each other, men and women, with a holy kiss, one on each cheek. Woo! I tell you, I remember the first time a man ever kissed me. You're thinking, uh-oh, what are... You're thinking, well, what did he do? As one of our deacons at my last church. We were getting ready to move here. He came up and planted one on my cheek and said, Brother, I want you to know I love you, and I'm praying for you and your family. I was like, oh, he's touching me. It got real, right? But here's what I want you to see. This guy comes up to kiss him, to identify him, to say, this is the guy to arrest. This is the guy to haul off. This wouldn't be the first time Judas had kissed Jesus, by the way. They would have probably done this over and over and over through the time of their life that they've had together. And yet, in this moment, this is a kiss of betrayal. This is a morose kiss. This is a disgusting kiss. This is a grotesque kiss. And he shows up. And his followers go, uh-oh, the jig's up. One of them pulls the sword. We know who it is from another one of the Gospels, Peter. Now, what was Peter, a fisherman, doing with a sword in his pocket? I don't know. Apparently, he's not a very good swordsman because he went to hack off the guy's head and he gets his ear. But there he is in the moment. And Jesus stops everything right there at the verse 51 and says what? No more of this! Stop! This is not who we are. This is not what we're about. Guys, where have you been for three years? Have you been listening at all? Do you not understand what I'm here to do? Don't you understand what it's about? Don't you understand why we're in this moment right now? They want to go fight a battle. And Jesus says, oh no. Jesus powerfully rejects violence in this moment. He says, we do not respond that way. We are people of peace. We don't kill, we heal. We don't destroy, we build up. We don't tear down, we encourage. Oh my goodness, church, this is a moment, isn't it? So Jesus does what needs to happen. He heals the severed ear. Anybody could do it? Jesus could do it, right? He took care of it. And he says, we're not going to be about this. He says, the way forward is not violence. The way forward is peace. And all those around may sink to despicable actions and they may do awful things, but my followers, Jesus says, don't do that. We rise above. We come up higher and we have peace. War is never the preferable path, though it does happen. Violence is never the right direction to go. War is never to be desired. He says, that's not what we're here for, guys. Jesus rejects violence. And then third, Jesus powerfully Loves his followers. And we're going to jump to another scene. Now, the first two scenes were set over in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eastern, western slope of the Garden of the Mount of Olives facing the city of Jerusalem. Now the soldiers have got a hold of him. And by the way, his disciples have skedaddled, as we might say today, and disappeared. 
But Jesus is in custody. And he's taken back across that Kidron Valley, back over to the temple area, to the city of Jerusalem, to the mount where God's people would gather for centuries to worship holy God. And they take him, as verse 54 says, they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, Thus, this man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. But a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also were one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him. He too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know who what you are talking about. And immediately... While he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And Jesus turned, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before, the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So with the arrest of Jesus, he's led it back across into the city. He's back over to this. And we think uh, uh, the high priest house must have been like, you know, a three-bedroom ranch, right? No. This was a massive facility. This would have been a large building. It would have had a private residence within it for the high priest and his family, but it would have had courtyards. It would have had meeting rooms. It would have had, uh, get this, it would have had a lower level where they had a holding cell for those who were under arrest. You're going, under arrest? Priests don't arrest people. Well, the culture is blended together like theirs were, where the religion and the culture were mixed together and the authority was also vested in a priest. You needed those kind of spaces. And so here they are in this large building, and Jesus is taken to his first trial. Now, I put that in quotes because it really isn't a trial. It's a show. They've already got a plan. They know exactly what they want. They know they're going to try to manipulate the Romans to accomplish what they need. But they got to go through the motions, you know. We got to we got to go through the action to make sure everybody thinks that we did it right. And these trials were just shows before they got Jesus to the to the authorities. And into this courtyard enters Peter. He's sneaking into the enemy territory, by the way. <laughs> he wants to see what's happening to his teacher, Jesus. He goes, I, I don't understand. I thought he wanted to be a leader, and I tried to step up and and fight, and he said, stop, I don't get it, I don't understand. He thinks to himself, oh, I'm sure what they'll do is they'll whip Jesus, and then they'll release him, and he'll need somebody to help walk with him to get out of town, so I'll be there for him, and I'll, I'll be there in the moment, I'll, I'll step up. And, and all these people are going, yeah, you're one. And he goes, oh, no, not me. And another one goes, you're one. No, 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 no. And then the third one, oh, no, not me. Oh, no way. Don't put me in his camp. Isn't it funny how we deny when we shouldn't? By the way, Jesus had already told Peter what he'd do. And what he was going to do is what he did. Because the roaster crowed. But look at verse 61. Because this is the focus for this morning. For this verse. And the Lord turned... I don't need these things anyway. Where are y'all? And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now stop right there. The word I want you to focus on is the word looked. In the original language, this word carries a whole lot more meaning than just 
I looked. I see a choir back here. I looked. I turn around. I look. I see there's folks out here. I look up there, and if the Internet's working today, there's folks on the Internet watching. And if it's not, good luck. That's not what his word means. Oh, it means that, but it means way more than that. It means more than just seeing someone. It means this. Looking at somebody. You know what I'm talking about? You remember when you were a kid? I know Fred does, or I'd talk to him. When you were a kid and your mama looked at you, you remember that look? Whoa, I didn't mean to do that, mama. I'm sorry. That's the look. That's the look that Jesus gives him. Jesus looks him in the eye and just burns a hole through. It's like when your teacher looks at you. You know, mine always did it. They look at Patrick. I'd keep around doing what I was doing. But anyway, they look at you. It's this idea of a soul-piercing intent look where they stopped and looked. And Jesus looks at him. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, Jesus is disappointed in Peter. I'm sure there's disappointment here. Don't misunderstand. But I think there's more to it than that. Because Jesus knows who Peter is going to be. Peter is going to be the rock upon which he's going to build the church, y'all. He is the one who's going to be the leader for a while of the church and to be the one out there sharing the gospel. He's the one that's going to end up preaching to the, the Gentiles. He's the one that's going to stand at the Temple Mount and preach, preach to, the, to the Jews. He's the one that's got a job coming up. And Jesus looks at him and says, Oh, Peter, I love you. You're capable of so much more. He looked at him with love, with compassion, with concern. His love for Jesus, for Peter was deep and abiding because his heart for people, for you and me, and for Peter, is redemption, is forgiveness, is success in the kingdom of God. He doesn't want us to fail. He doesn't want us to flounder. He wants us to stand up and do the right things. So what do you do with this? Real quickly, three thoughts. We've got to find God's power in his plans, in his plans. Those of you who are disappointed I wasn't alliterative in the first half of the message, there's hope ahead. The first thing we can grasp for this passage is the part of finding God's power released in our lives. How many of you want God's power released in your life? How many of you want to have a life that's successful and blessed I think all of us do, don't we? We want to live a life that makes a difference. We want to like a life that in the end people look back and go, man, we miss him. Not, ooh, we're glad he's gone. Okay? And the thing is, is you won't really know the outcome until you get to your funeral, and then you won't know because you won't be there. But everybody else will know. All of us want happiness. All of us want contentment. We all want to feel as though our lives matter as we're contributing to the good. And where we get off track, listen, is when we wrongly deduce that the way to get all of this is by imposing our will or trying to get our way. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus' will as a human was, I don't want to die. But he said what? Not my will, but yours. You want a prayer for your life? Right there it is. You want a prayer to pray and say, God, I want what's best in my life. I want what's best for me. I want what's best for my family. I want what's best for my community. I don't want to impose my will, God. I want to find your will. I want to find your direction. I want to find your purpose. i got to tell you, most of us Americans are really good at imposing our will. This is what I'm going to do. Here's my thought. Here's my direction. Here's what I'm going to do. Listen, I am tired of me trying to figure out life. 
I need God's will, don't you? I need God's plan. I need God's direction way more than I need my thoughts. This is so counterintuitive to us, isn't it? We go, but, but I'm supposed to decide. We ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know what we ought to ask kids? What do you think God wants you to be when you grow up? That's what we want. I want people to grow up knowing God, hearing God's word, living God's life. I want us as adults to say, no, it's not about me. It's about you, God. And until we discover God's plan for our lives, we will not find happiness. Some of you are going, man, I've been living for years. I'm not, it's just, uh, find God's direction. Find God's plan. Psalm 37 says, the steps of man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. How do you find God's steps? You delight in his way. How do you delight in God's way? You get in on what God's up to. You get in on what God's sharing with us. You get in on doing what God's already doing and joining him where he's at work. You become part of his kingdom's plan. You don't have to do it all. Just do what he calls you to do. Second, find God's power in his peace. Any of y'all like peace? Uh-uh, I want to stir up trouble. I want to be a, a troublemaker in life. I won't tell you, some of y'all, that's your goal, I think. But when we fall into God's experience of power and live and walk in his peace, oh my goodness. Everywhere we look, there is no peace. Everywhere we look, there's conflict. You cannot turn on a news app, open a newspaper, turn on a news program without hearing what? Conflict, conflict, conflict. Argument, argument, argument. It's like we're trying to figure out ways to divide ourselves as people. We find his peace. We find unity. We find joy. We find contentment. Think back to the moment Jesus faced arrest. If there was any a time to fight back, that would have been it. Jesus said, oh no, you're not going to arrest me. I'm here to save the sins, being the people of the world. I'm going to save them from their sins. You're not going to arrest me. Uh-uh. Jesus said, cut it out, Peter. We're not here to fight. We're here for what? For peace. But how do we find that powerful peace? Can we force it? No. Can we manufacture it? No. Can we wish it into existence? Well, I wish there was peace. Don't you? I wish there was peace. I can't. That did any good. Peter gives us a clue. This is, by the way, the same Peter who drew the sword years later wrote these words about this situation. This is the same guy that denied Jesus three times. This is the same guy that really tried to stir it up and mix it up that night. Are you ready? He says this. Humble yourself. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your troubles, all your anxieties, all your mess, on who? On him, because he cares for you. His take on life is this. The pathway forward is the path of peace, not of violence. You talk about a radical change. To go from being a young man who pulled the sword and cut off an ear to being a guy who says what we really need to do is humble ourselves. But that power of Jesus to transform life, that's what this is. It takes us from self-centeredness and bitterness to people of peace. And when we let Christ take center stage of our lives, here's what we find. That his peace begins to grow in us. Does that mean there won't ever be conflict? Of course not. Does there won't ever be struggle? Of course not. You mean there won't be hard days? Yes, there will be. But his peace carries us through them.
And then third, we find God's power in His passion. In His love. Can I remind you one thing? God is love. Some of you this morning, you think, well, no, God's judgment. He's trying to tear me down. He looks at my life and you've messed up this, this, and this. You're bad. You're pitiful. You're worthless. You're useless. No, no, no. You got the wrong God. The God of the Bible is love. He looks at your life and he says, I love you. Does that mean everything you're doing is good? We know better than that, right? But he looks at your life and says, I love you. I love you how much? A little bit. No, no. I love you completely. And I want to take your life and help you become what I created you to be. Something special, something amazing, something wonderful. We want to say, God, I don't want to fight you. We don't want to argue with God. You say, God, you don't know what you're talking about. Really? You're smarter than God. I got it. God's always going to be smarter than me. And even when you believe there's nothing in your life worth loving, God still loves you. Paul described it this way. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Have you ever thought of yourself as a jar of clay? I think I prayed earlier. We're like Ziploc bags. You ever try to reuse Ziploc bags? Yes, I'm that guy, okay? I try. But sometimes you, you get it out and you go, I think this bag's seen better days. Put it in the trash, okay? That's what we're like. We got a shelf life. And you know what's in a Ziploc bag before you put something in a Ziploc bag? This is deep already. Nothing. Nothing. But when you put something good in there, what you got is a whole bunch of something good in there. Oh, oh, in a bag. That's what we are. We're Ziploc bags. We're jars of clay. You know, I always find it interesting. Archaeologists go to different places. And you know what they start looking for in these archaeological digs? One of the first things they find? Broken jars of clay. Pots. You know why they do that? Because that's how they figure out how old it is. That's the dating. But they were looking at the holder, not what was in the pot. That's what God has for us. We're all a bunch of jars of clay. We'll eventually get broken. We'll eventually quit holding stuff. Wow, you go down that long too, road too long, you get some weird images, but that's who we are. But when we get to hold within us the presence of God, oh, look out. We have his love within us. John Piper suggested this path for us to follow. He said this, but whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find a way to say it and live for it, and die for it, and you'll make a difference that lasts. You won't waste your life. You know, we only have one trip through this life. Some of us are on the second half of the game already. Some of us are in the fourth quarter. I'm just going to stop there. You You could say some of them are overtime, but that's another story. Our lives are supposed to matter, aren't they? They're supposed to make a difference to those we encounter. And you say, well, I've wasted all these years up to here. You know what? You can't go back and change it. But you can decide from right here to go forward with Him.
And it starts with that point of conversion, my friends, that we have to come to. You go, what do you mean? I thought I could just be a good person. No, there's more to it than being a good person. Do you know, the Bible tells us that none is good. No, not one. So we're not good folks. We're all born in sin. We'll die in sin unless something changes. We have to come to that place where we trust Christ personally and say, God, I need you more than I need anything else. You go, so he wants me to join the church. I didn't say I want you to join the church. Listen, I want you to meet Jesus. That's way more important than joining any church on planet earth. You got to come to the place where you say, God, I am a mess. You go, well, I'm not a mess. You are a mess. We all know. You got issues. And if you don't know Jesus, you're in a world of hurt. You come to the place where you go, God, I need you more than I need anything else. I want to trust you with my life. I want to give my heart to you. I want to follow you with all my, my days. Some of you say, well, doesn't that mean it'll be expensive or costly if I do that? It'll be a change, but it'll be worth it. Because you'll have new life, new purpose, new meaning, and a new direction to do what God calls you to do. I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. Maybe you do need to trust Christ. I'd love to pray with you here at the front and help you pray through that prayer again to get it nailed down. Maybe you need to make some kind of other public decision. Uh, I don't know what that might be, but I want to trust you to know as the God's Holy Spirit speaking to you. Let's go to the Word, the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you, Lord, thanking you for your love for us, for your blessing. We pray for those who need to make some type of decision this morning public. But Father, more importantly, we pray for those who need to make a decision right now to trust you. Father, I pray that you would guide them to trust you with their whole heart. And that you would come in and dwell within them as you promise in your word you will. We pray your blessing on these few moments as we respond to you. We pray for your leading. And we pray for your love to be released. In Jesus' name. Amen.